Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of My Favorite Friendship. I'm Brian Wool. And I'm Mark Musinski. And we are best friends. My Favorite Friendship is a true friendship podcast, much like a true crime podcast, but instead of talking about murder, we're talking about friendship. We're looking at famous friendships in history, uh, also concepts of friendship, looking to all these different aspects of friendship to learn how to be better at making friends and how to be better friends with the ones that we already have. And My Favorite Friendship is a podcast made by friends, for friends, and we need more friends. And the way that we can get more friends is for you to leave a five-star review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, or share with your friends our, one of our episodes. Say, hey, you remind me of the friendship of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in that you died and I'm still here. <laughs> uh, you remind me of the friendship of Jim Henson and Frank Oz in that you died and I'm still here. Uh, you... You remind me of the friendship of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. and that both of us died. <laughs> you know, uh, the, look, uh, a lot of friendships uh, span enough lifetime that somebody dies. And that... Yeah, I, you know, I pick random ones and it just turned out that everyone was dead. Oops. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> the friendships help make their lives more fulfilling. And I think that's what's important to remember. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Rhett and Link are still alive. You can say we're like Rhett and Link. We're buds. <laughs> we used to be really Christian, and now we're not. <laughs> How about that? That's a little bit more relatable Great. than the death. Because <laughs> dead people don't really listen to podcasts, or else our numbers would probably be higher. <laughs> so we start every episode the way that we like to conduct our friendship we should check in with our friends so mark how's your week in friendship been it you know it's been pretty good i haven't had a lot of friendship interactions other than uh, getting to hang out with you i think you were actually the first person to see our apartment after we moved in oh maybe my sister saw it but the first friend to see our apartment or our new our new place like since we moved in uh, and then we got to go have have uh, dinner and drinks together and it was great and uh, especially because I've spent the last several weeks packing and then moving and then unpacking, having just a night to like hang out and catch up because you had just gotten back from a big tour uh, and hear all about that. Like that was just such a highlight. So I guess thank you. Uh, Thanks for coming out to the Valley uh, to, for that. It was great. I was so excited to see you. It's been, it's been way too long since I've been able to see you in person. So... That was awesome. I loved it. How about you? How was your week in friendship? Well, it's been good. You know, I've been reconnecting with my coworkers since I was gone uh, on tour with Lou Berger, and so that's been uh, important to me to show my coworkers and and my friends back home that I care, and uh, it wasn't just me uh, leaving and uh, not coming back. So. I, I felt like that was important to me. I, I feel like my friends probably know that I care, mm-hmm. but it, I feel like it's important. To, you need to show that you care and spend time with people and show up. Otherwise, uh, you, I don't know. It's, I feel like you, you need to put in that effort. Yeah. Friends need to see that you care. <laughs> yeah, and every friendship has a different... I don't know. There's like a different... So there are definitely friends who you just can 
not speak to them and then talk to them again after five years and it's like no time has passed. But the friends that you actually depend on, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you, you kind of have to show up like you're saying. Yeah. So definitely did that. And uh, and been just doing shows stand-up. And uh, it's been cool to see other comics that I haven't seen in a while. Always love seeing seeing friends at, at comedy shows and and seeing what they're working on and it's I, I love connecting with with my stand-up comedy friends that's great uh well speaking of friends who connected at shows or well or who did a bunch of shows i don't know it's sort of a segue to this week's friendship <laughs> which is i'm excited for this one mark it is the the bond the friendship the mentor student to peers to a lot of different layers relationship uh between miles davis and john coltrane um i i didn't know a lot about jazz music i I guess i still don't really know a lot about jazz music but it wasn't until college where i was taking a dance class i don't know why i was in a dance class I, i think it was just like one day I honestly am like, why was I? Oh, you know what it was? I think they needed, they just needed like people for something. For like a rehearsal? I don't know. Genuinely, I guess I have no idea why I was in this dance space other than the fact that it was college. And anytime there were like random performances, you always ended up roping in somebody. But there was this drummer who was kind of doing the rhythm for this dance piece. And all the you know i remember talking to him because all the dancers were busy practicing and warming up and doing their dance stuff and i don't remember how it came up but at some point i was just he was talking about music and i was and he brought up the album a love supreme by john coltrane and he said i think that's the greatest album of all time and i i was like you know i've never thought about what the greatest album of all time is and this guy who's a music student and a very talented drummer i'm like i guess i should check out the album he thinks is the greatest album of all time. Uh-huh. And so, but I was also in college and poor. So I went to the library where you could check out CDs. And I just checked out a bunch of, I've checked out A Love Supreme. I checked out Miles and Train, which was like a six disc collection of the two of them playing together. Uh, mostly like live sessions. And then I just got some Miles Davis stuff because I'd heard his name before. And I, back in the day, I just ripped all those CDs onto my computer so that I had them forever. Um, and that was the first jazz music I ever really listened to. And I gotta say, I Love Supreme is an incredible album. Um, yeah, man. John Coltrane is amazing at saxophone. His music is so beautiful. And it's, it's so fun to listen to him play. And uh, and Miles Davis, also legendary trumpet player, so fantastic. First time I heard of Miles Davis was in Billy Madison, where the kid pees his pants, and then the old lady says, if peeing in your pants is cool, then call me Miles Davis. <laughs> and that was the first time I've, I ever heard Miles Davis's name. Yeah. And I was like, "Who? who's that guy? If he's so cool... <laughs> I know. I mean, I need to find out who this is. And I was, you know, about I don't know, ten or eleven, mm-hmm. something like that, when I first saw the film. So, uh, 
what? You know, it took time because as the internet came around, it became easier to search for things, and uh, I had to check out the music from the the library. I did a mm-hmm. lot of library checking out for CDs and then ripping them into MP3s on my computer, much like you just described. Yeah, that was very much what I did. Speaking and uh, <laughs> speaking of the cool yeah. thing, I, so I, one of the articles I read was a. I think The Guardian has a series where they republish what they called vintage rock journalism, um, which is is such a cool idea. And I really would love to read more of these articles. But it's essentially a a republication, in this case, of an article from like the 80s that I think was in Rolling Stone or something like that. And it was an interview with Miles Davis. And they used all of these like nicknames that people had for him at the time which included like the king of cool and the king of cool yes the prince of darkness which like when i think of the prince of darkness i think of like you know like a, a metal band or like you know <laughs> alice cooper or ozzy osbourne or something like that i don't think of miles davis but i you know that was like i guess the dark mood of a lot of his especially his later work is maybe why (laughs) that love supreme album and a lot of john coltrane's career since possibly would not have happened if he had not crossed paths with miles davis who completely opened up both him as a musician but also brought him to the attention of the the jazz and contemporary music world of the time uh and so but Unfortunately, their story is a lot of like yin and yang kind of energy. Um, so, so both guys were born in 1926. Miles Davis was born in Alton, Illinois. A good Illinois boy. Uh, hey, how about <laughs> just it? like you and I? Uh, and his his parents were like uh, I think his dad was like a dentist and pretty well off. Ended up, you know, ha- had the money to fund his son's exploration of music as a career um, and and also had the money later to bankroll his son like living in Paris and um, having a drug habit and a lot, a lot of other things that probably Miles <laughs> wouldn't have been lucky enough to get away with uh, had he not had a, a sort of wealthy family um, and he was you know drawn to music very quickly or I guess I don't know if he's drawn to music very quickly but he was successful at music very quickly and by the age of 19, he was already playing in uh, Charlie Parker's bebop quintet, I believe. Charlie Parker's bebop band, <laughs> uh, which was like one of the top bands at the time. And, uh, and Charlie Parker is a legend in his own right. And one of the things that yeah. I thought was so cool about this was the way in which, because so much of jazz involves a band playing together, but then each artist soloing, the the community at the time had this sort of culture of like, you know, they brought in this young prodigy, this 19-year-old incredible trumpet player. And, uh, but then because he gets to solo, because, you know, everyone gets to solo, people identify him. And soon thereafter, I think probably by 21, he's like producing his own shows. He's headlining his own shows or, or organizing his own bands. And he within a couple years was like, you know, the top of all these 
jazz critics lists of best trumpet players and best musicians and best all all these things like he was he was a, a real like uh, wunderkind kind of in the way like in our Steven Spielberg uh George Lucas friendship like they were just identified immediately as like super talented people who everyone should watch the weird thing in this is sort of like one of the ways in one of the many ways in which they were like opposites is that Miles Davis loved going out was a, a sort of a, he was a big personality uh, but his actual trumpet playing is like very introspective and vulnerable it has a lot of negative space in it um and, and there you know what i mean like i'm trying to think if that's a good it's, there's something very like pensive and thoughtful about the sound of his playing uh yeah he I, he you know it's not about putting in as many notes as possible it's just making them count yes that's a great description and john coltrane mm-hmm. uh turns out was like the exact opposite both in his background and in <laughs> his thing so like john coltrane uh was was born to like a middle lower middle class family where like i think multiple generations of the men were were reverends and uh but unfortunately, due to some um, like tragedies in the family, uh, when he was thirteen, he became the he was the oldest living male uh, in his family. So he was he basically Damn. had to provide. Um, he enlisted in the navy as soon as he could during World War Two, and uh, and unlike Miles Davis, whose father could bankroll him experimenting with music, going out to clubs, meeting people, doing all this stuff. Uh, John did not have that luxury. And so he ended up playing a, a lot of like uh, what one of the articles described as like journeyman gigs. So he was, you know, he's obviously a very skilled guy. And uh, he had he had actually played in the Navy at one point. And Miles mm. Davis had heard a recording and was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like, th- thought he was pretty good, but it didn't necessarily, like, it wasn't like, wow, oh, my God, the next phenomenon. Uh, but, um, and so uh, John Coltrane was living in Philadelphia. He was playing, I think he was playing for Dizzy Gillespie's big band, which. How cool. Yeah, I'm sure was a blast. Um, but the thing is, like, when you play in a big band, you you have a much, as one member of that big band, you don't get the the platform that you do as uh, you know as one member of Charlie Parker's five person group. You don't get to solo. Yeah. You don't get to do crazy things, and uh, and John Coltrane, um, in many ways, was the opposite of Miles Davis, both on and off stage. He was off stage. He was very quiet. He would practice incessantly. Um, he was constantly like just playing scales like over and over and over again, and uh, but his onstage playing was like bold and and loud and fast and like you know it was like every combination of notes that you can get in one you know that fit into this chord progression. It's just wild and exciting and fun, um, but he hadn't quite developed that yet when the two crossed paths again so in 1952 miles davis organized one of his own shows 
where he had two tenor sax players. One was Sonny Rollins, who is like a friend and frequent collaborator of his. Uh, and the other... Yeah, another another tremendous player. Oh, yeah, incredible. And the other was John Coltrane. And uh, apparently, Sonny Rollins just put John Coltrane to shame. Like, obviously, both were talented, but Coltrane was very humbled by this experience. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the the Miles Davis quote about it was like, Rollins was awesome that night, and that scared the shit out of Train. <laughs> and, you know, the, so they both just went back into different parts of this. What was also interesting about this is how small this world was of professional, successful jazz musicians at the time. You know, like even John Coltrane, I'm describing as playing journeyman gigs, but he's playing for Dizzy Gillespie, who's a huge name. And, you know, Miles Davis is still bringing him on stage to perform at certain times. But uh, Miles Davis was going through a lot in the early 1950s. He had, you know, as often comes with being a child prodigy, beloved genius early in life, uh, he uh, had a bit of a drug problem. And he also just got really burned out Um he ended up going to Paris for a long time, where he met a bunch of like influential Parisians that were there in sort of the post-World War II area, like Sartre. Um, uh, and he also... The other thing that was rough was like the um, racism in Europe. Like seeing the way race relations were in Europe, which I'm sure was not... Uh, Wonderful, but compared to like segregated 1950s America, um, was really depressing for Miles Davis, and uh, and certainly did not help his wanting to be in America and perform, and probably not wanting not helping him uh, want to be sober. Um, but eventually, he so he he kind of like went away for a little bit. Um, and after finally kicking his drug habit, he came back in the summer of 1955. He made like a surprise appearance at the Newport Jazz Festival and played, you know, a very iconic Miles Davis solo on somebody else's song. And the crowd went wild. And in the wake of this sort of fun surprise return, two huge, like two huge opportunities came his way. Uh, this one guy who was like a big booking agent was like, Hey, I will, if you can get a band together, I will give you, I will book you a national tour. Um, which I think even though he was this well-known, you know, genius, incredible trumpet player, I, I think this might've been the first time he was a band leader for like a national tour kind of thing, or at least at this size venue that the guy was, this big booking agent was going to give him. And then uh, a record label, um, person was like, if you can get a band together and keep that band together, I'll record the album. The only problem is that Miles Davis did not have a band. Uh, and uh -huh. part of why he didn't have a band is because a couple of the people, including Sonny Rollins, that he would normally collaborate with um, were, were getting clean uh, from their own drug problems. And so mm. he had reached out to a bunch of people, including Cannonball Adderley, 
uh, yeah, I love Cannonball Adderley. But Cannonball Adderley had a like a teaching contract in Florida or something like that. Like he couldn't go on because they had it was basically like, hey, I've got this tour coming up. I need I need somebody for this tour. Uh, and so I think through a contact, somebody was like, hey, uh, I think John Coltrane is free. Can he come audition? And uh, Miles Davis was like, I don't know. I saw him in 52. He's, he's fine. He's a talented kid. But, like, I'm Miles Davis. I, I want incredible, you know. I, the thing that they both have in common is that they're both incredibly serious about their music as art and about how they wanted to push the medium forward. And they definitely took everything about music and jazz and their instruments, like, incredibly seriously and you can see the results. Like they, whatever. We'll get to it when they when they actually are together. But so Miles Davis, you know, wants to get the best. And John Coltrane comes up from Philadelphia, and uh, and starts playing. And Miles Davis, in talking about it, I guess tenor sax players at the time were either doing like you know one of two kind of common things and. Coltrane was the only person he heard that was like, the seeds of a of a unique sound are here, and he was like, he's he's made a lot of progress since '52. Like this guy, he's doing something interesting and new, and and then at the end of uh, at the end of the audition set, Coltrane asked him for feedback because John Coltrane always is wanting to get better, and that like pissed off Miles Davis because he's like, real jazz musicians don't ask other people for feedback. Uh, and so he he didn't say any of that. He just like sort of glared at him. And so Coltrane was like, wow, it was that bad, wasn't it? Uh, and, so, and so he like backed up his sax and went home. And uh, apparently um, there wasn't that much time left for the tour. And so Miles Davis was like, fuck, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just, uh, we'll go with Coltrane. He's got something interesting and I can work with that. And very quickly on this tour, the two bonded over just how serious they were about music. Like Coltrane would be working on scales and progressions and, and uh, Miles Davis would be like writing down, you know, new chord progressions on a matchbook and he would like give it to the band and, and Coltrane especially and be like, Hey, um, like these are the chords, but don't play them in this order. Don't play them in the way anyone else is playing them. And remember, you can always, you know, go up a third, go up a fifth. Uh, so that gives you like 18 or 19 different ways to play these chords. And then uh, Coltrane would take that and then figure out a way to do all 19 of those different ways to move through those chords in like two measures. <laughs> like he would just blast out sound. And uh, it became clear very quickly that Coltrane was was soaking up everything Miles Davis was was teaching, which Davis loved, and also that um, that their their dynamic of Miles Davis's kind of like quiet, pensive sound and Coltrane's like loud, exciting, fast sound played really, really well together, and audiences were noticing Coltrane as he got into this. Um, you know, got very, I don't carried away might be too much, but like, like, you know, for the side man in the band, his solos would be like three or four times longer than Miles Davis's. 
Miles Davis wow. got into the habit of just leaving the bandstand and sitting in the audience to watch. I, I don't. I can't. I couldn't quite tell how he felt about the long exuberant solos. He did at some point, I guess, be like, "Hey, you know, you can stop playing. You know, that's like an option." Um. <laughs> but yeah, he would just go sit with the audience while they got blown away by John Coltrane. And uh, and the two of them together uh, was just sort of like a sensation. They, uh, I'm trying to remember the albums, the Miles Davis albums that came out in this early part of their collaboration, but certainly this tour was a big hit. And then the only thing that got in the way was... And it's, I guess, a recurring theme, especially among these these uh, jazz musicians of the time, was John Coltrane's uh, drug habit started to started to affect his performance. You know, he was showing up late. He was showing up drunk, or he was showing up high. And if he couldn't get high, then he would get drunk. And you know, he's sort of fallen asleep at the at the music stand or whatever. And uh, eventually, it, it boiled over. And and at first, Miles Davis had some empathy for this because he'd been through it all. And, you know, he, it was still, it's never easy to, to kick a habit like that, and especially to stay clean in a world where half of your own band have addiction problems. But uh, eventually, he lost his patience for it because it was affecting the, the work. And... Uh, at the at a club in New York, he ended up getting into a big, essentially like a. Sh- it wasn't really a fight because Coltrane was kind of too high to respond, but it ended in Miles Davis slapping Coltrane. Even though John Coltrane is like significantly taller than Miles Davis, uh, it ended with Miles Davis slapping him and punching him in the stomach, and and wow. just really being like, "You're you're gonna fuck up your life." And apparently, um, Thelonious Monk, another jazz great, was in the audience for this or was around, maybe hanging backstage and saw it. Wow. And was like, hey, Coltrane, you, should, you shouldn't listen to that. You should quit and come join my band. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, John Coltrane needed the, um, the bigger paychecks that Miles Davis's fame could provide. Uh, partially to support his family, partially to support his drug habit. Um, And so he kind of like tried to keep it together. And then eventually Miles Davis kicked him out of the band. And I think that was probably 50, late 56 or 57. That was like a real wake up call for John Coltrane. And I feel like we've, we've had a lot of friendships that struggle with addiction and in a lot of those stories, mm-hmm. the support of the friend, but also sometimes the the giving up of support of the friend were key moments in, in the struggle. Um, and in this case, uh, it, it did help. Uh, I think it pushed, first off, it made him go back home and stop hanging out in jazz clubs where there was lots of drugs available. Um, so he went home with the help of his family and his friends and, uh, and sort of by reconnecting to his spirituality, John Coltrane was able to both stop drinking and stop using drugs. 
and eventually he made like a triumphant return. I don't know if it was that. I think it was probably a more hesitant return, but in retrospect, triumphant return uh, to to Miles Davis's group. And from that point on, they basically were just cranking out iconic music. That's when um, I think the first album they made after he came back was Milestones. And then the second one is Kind of Blue, which is at least... Such a great record. Yeah, at least equal, if not more prestigious than a Love Supreme, I would say. They're certainly the two... They've got to be the two biggest albums in the like jazz pantheon, right? Got to be. Um, and uh, I always forget that Coltrane is the sax player on Kind of Blue. Uh, it's just such a, such a good album. Um, and yeah, they were essentially just... Blowing people away. Oh, 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 I forgot this tangent. In When they were first working, before, uh, before Coltrane went to get sober on that first tour, before anyone really knew what Coltrane could do, uh, except Miles Davis, who famously was like a really incredible talent scout, essentially, which I think is a common, a common property amongst the, the like legendary figures, you know, like... Being able to surround yourself with people who will make you better is crucial, I think. Um, yeah. So on that first national tour, they get to California where like cool jazz was like the new movement. And uh-huh. there's a, a saxophonist named Stan Getz, who's also uh-huh. very famous. Um, yeah. And at the time, he was kind of like the one of the one of the kings of this new movement and uh he begged to sit in on the set and apparently coltrane just like obliterated him and one of the like someone who was at the thing described it as quote uh coltrane destroyed west coast jazz overnight wow like uh, like, because i guess all the movers and shakers were there and this was just like holy shit what are these people doing um, so, uh, so back to, back to the kind of blue 1959, they've been performing together on and off for almost five years and, uh, and the unfortunate, fortunate thing is that John Coltrane has just blossomed under the influence of Miles Davis and, and everyone else they're meeting and the chance to really break out as a soloist. Um, just this opportunity to play with Miles and everything that came with it uh, opened him up and opened the world up to him. And it was getting very obvious that uh, John Coltrane wasn't going to be a sideman for much longer. And this was tough because Kind of Blue was such a big hit. And so there was this huge appetite for that band to tour um, they, they had a, Miles had a big European tour coming up, and so he did everything he could to keep John Coltrane in the band. He he basically he set John Coltrane up with his own manager to like help set up his publishing company and make sure he was getting you know the getting the most he could for his own business. He Miles Davis got his own booking agent to book John Coltrane shows when they when. Miles wasn't when Miles didn't need him. Basically, he, he essentially did everything he could to set up Coltrane to succeed 
on Miles's terms, you know, so that they could keep touring, keep making stuff together. And and unfortunately, uh, Coltrane's head was already already kind of drifting into his own music and his own sound that he was developing. Oh, and part of that, in that time where he was getting sober before he rejoined uh, with Miles Davis, he did end up playing with Thelonious Monk, and that was another huge influence on him. Um, and both Thelonious Monk's, like, sheets of sound idea, and also Miles Davis, at some point, had kind of, like... The way they described this was he had stopped using, like, chord progressions and started just using scales in a a style he called, or somebody dubbed, mobile jazz. And I think between Thelonious Monk, who was kind of, like, very idiosyncratic in his own way, and Miles Davis pushing the boundaries of music, and that kind of colliding in John Coltrane, it just really set him up, set Coltrane up to, like, find his own incredibly unique, incredibly, uh, what, just incredible contribution. Um, and so Coltrane agreed to go on that European tour, but it was very clear that he was like not into it. Um, and you, there's, they, they did a big concert in Paris and everyone was there to see like kind of blue and things like kind of blue but john coltrane when it came to his solos was just like doing something different you know (laughs) and like not not that it didn't fit but it just wasn't it didn't play right with everything else that was going on he was clearly like experimenting and and just wanting to do his own thing and apparently the pianist in the band was too so it was kind of like hearing three completely different bands all in the same song um, wow. And the, the, all the jazz critics were like, not since the Rite of Spring scandalized the classical music world has anything shaken up, the, you know, the Parisian scene like this this one specific concert. Um, but, but yeah, so kind of after that point, they did a couple more gigs, but it was clear that John Coltrane uh, was ready to step out on his own. And he literally did step out on his own shortly thereafter with his one of his own first solo albums called Giant Steps. I, I think that's mm. one. Yeah. Um, and so he... That was kind of the beginning of his solo career and... Or his, like, uh, exclusively solo career. And about five years after that, it was sort of like five years from where they met to when John Coltrane did his own thing five years from John Coltrane leaving to a love Supreme. And, Mm. uh, I, I don't think they performed much together from that point on, but they couldn't, but they were certainly aware of each other and certainly were crossing paths. Um, and their live, their musical legacy lives on in multiple studio albums and then a ton of live recordings of them playing all over the place. And uh, unfortunately, um, uh, John Coltrane died uh, not too long after that. Um, I think 67. Let me confirm this. So, so young. Yeah. He died in 67. Um, 
complications due to his alcoholism and heroin use, he ended up having a like liver failure way too young. Yeah. I think he would have been 41 at the time. And and just re- like right at the top of his game. And uh yeah. and I think that was a a giant loss for the world of jazz. Um, although that was kind of right at the time when that era of jazz music was coming to an end because rock and roll music was, uh, was coming up. Yeah. But like jazz musicians, they left America and went to like Germany and kept playing there. And that's where you get music from guys like Dexter Gordon. Yeah. And Dexter Gordon made some of his best stuff in the sixties when jazz wasn't really popular in the United States. So if if he if Coltrane survived, you know, man, I think he still would have made some awesome stuff, and I'm sure the Germans would have thrown a bunch of money at him oh, yeah. to get him over there, because that's what they were doing in the '60s. Was jazz was huge in Germany, while rock and roll was booming everywhere else. Well, and so they were they were spending. And you get guys like Miles Davis who went on to uh, basically to experiment with a lot of sounds, including including rock and roll type sounds. Uh, electric sounds, a lot of different stuff. Um, he basically never stopped evolving and trying new things. And and I want to say he passed away in 1992. So he had a a, an, a long career of working in a ton of different ways. He might have even lived later into the 90s. I'm, Let's I, find out. I'm not 100% for sure, but I, I know he made it into the 90s. Yeah. And... Uh, he had music videos oh, in the eighties. Ninety one. He had, like Miles wrong. Davis, ninety one. Oh wow! But yeah, he he was still going for a long time. Yeah. What a another tremendous talent! Thank goodness we had him for a little bit longer. But man, both guys so influential on on jazz music and just music in general. And what was so interesting reading about them was how many of their reference points were not necessarily like other jazz things. They talked a lot about. Classical music, they talked a lot about, uh, like Coltrane was studying Indian musical theory and um, just from other cultures, other places, other styles and genres of music, other instruments, all sorts of different things. Um, Like even little stuff, like when he was with Thelonious Monk performing, Monk, I guess, helped him figure out or somehow was partially responsible for Coltrane figuring out how to play the saxophone in kind of a non-traditional way that allowed him to play multiple notes at once. Cool. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. And uh, honestly, the best way to experience it is just to listen to it. And so even if you, if you just have time to listen to, I guess I would listen to Kind of Blue and then I would listen to A Love Supreme. So you can see John Coltrane supporting Miles Davis and then John Coltrane on his own. And then if you want to keep going uh, and listen to Sketches of Spain and Bitches Brew and a lot of other amazing Miles Davis recordings, there are so many. Yes, there are. So, so many and all worth it. They're fantastic. But yeah, that is the sort of like brief, hot, but sort of not predictable, but like almost inevitable collaboration and separation between these two guys who the thing they shared most in common was pushing their art form forward and 
they collaborated as long as that was the case. And then when it was time for them both to push it in different directions, that's what they did. It, re- it made me think a lot about this concept, I want to say Brian Eno came up with, um, or at least coined the term for, called a senius. So instead of something like a genius, where we just give one person credit, like Shakespeare, for example, it's like, oh, Shakespeare's a genius. Um, the reality is that Shakespeare lived at a time and lived in a community of people who were all doing this thing. Like it was, theater was booming. Lots of people were writing plays in iambic pentameter. There was a big appetite for plays. And all of the playwrights and and theater companies and actors were all pushing each other to do bigger, better, more interesting things. And so even though, you know, I guess in the scenario of this story, guys like Miles Davis and John Coltrane get the genius label, they were existing in this world, this whole scene, that was that they could not necessarily have reached the level that they did without. And so in some ways, it's the like collective that carries, that should get almost as much credit uh, than the individual, because those individuals in a vacuum wouldn't have ever been able to produce something like that. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I've, Seniors. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I've always loved that concept because it, it it just makes so much sense. Like, and and it's true of so many of the artistic friendships we've talked about. Like, the Monet was definitely part of a seniors, and we always remember the the big names, you know. But like, yeah, what about the friends who were coming to Miles Davis's shows and giving him feedback? What about the other artists who he was jealous of that he was trying to beat? You know, the, those are all really important factors like if you're trying to push an art form forward or find your voice or whatever that's often in relation to what's currently the accepted norm so i don't know i I always thought that concept was cool and i love this feels like a really clear version of two people who were who were the geniuses of their seniors if you will uh bumping into each other and and we're lucky t- that they did. Well, I, I most certainly, and it, it it seems like their friendship was mostly, although it got to a little bit of. If we're going with the Aristotle definitions, they 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 had a little bit of true friendship for a little bit, but as the addiction stuff came in, their friendship really changed to almost exclusively friendship of utility because their values just didn't quite line up anymore. Yeah. And when the utility was no longer there for the both of them, that was what led to the end. And I think it's tough because sometimes you you want to have a, a true friendship where you share values, but then you have to look at the person and realize that their values either aren't what you thought they were or they've changed over time. And that the thing that you thought you had may not be what you have. And then, you know. Um, but to the u- point, you know, to highlight the utility, to the I, for years after they were done playing together, John Coltrane referred to Miles Davis as the teacher. Mm. Well, there you go, yeah. Um, and Miles Davis acknowledged it at some point, too. Like, some, some critic asked him, they were like, your music is getting so, uh, you know, 
I forget what it, you know, complicated or whatever, intense, that you could have five saxophone players. And Miles Davis was like, I did have five saxophone players once. Uh, but he meant just John Coltrane was five saxophone yeah. players worth of notes. Um, but yeah, they, they clearly left an impact on each other that you wouldn't get if there wasn't some emotional entanglement as well. But it's hard. It's hard when things like drugs, and especially drugs, I guess in this case, come between them. And there were other people in the band who also, there was another, uh, I think the drummer, also got tossed the same time Coltrane did. Um, because, you know, if you're trying to run a big world art form progressing operation, uh, you can't have people falling asleep on the bandstand. Yeah. But yeah, that's the friendship. Well, thank you so much for bringing this friendship, Mark. This is tremendous. I can't wait to listen to some more of these guys' music. It'll be, it gives me a great excuse to listen to some good jazz tonight. Yeah. Well, if you were somewhere else in the world and you wanted to listen to good jazz music, where might you find friends to do that with? Oh, man, you could find them in Chicago, Illinois, a great town for jazz. Gotta go to Chicago. Or you can check out our friends here in Los Angeles, California. They love listening to jazz and my favorite friendship out here in L.A. Or you can go to Europe and check out our friends in Utrecht who love my favorite friendship. And I'm sure they love some jazz out in Utrecht, too. <laughs> or you can check out our friends near Penn State University or our friends in Denver, Colorado, in Austin, Texas. Or you can check out our friends in Washington, D.C. Or Sydney, Australia. Gotta love our friends in Sydney, Australia. And how could I forget our friends in New York, New York. Uh, and Brooklyn, New York. Gotta love our listeners over there. So, plenty of places where you can find friends all around the world. Most of them speak English because our podcast is in English. But if it wasn't, maybe you could find friends in those countries too. And if you wanted to be friends with us specifically, uh, you can reach out to this show at My Favorite Friendship or at My Fav Friendship on Twitter, who has a character limit, um, or at Brian Wool and at Mark Musinski on all platforms spelled like they sound. Uh, Brian, anything else you'd like to leave people with? Oh, well, that's about it. Have a great week, everybody. Stay friendly. Bye. Bye.